Welcome to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. We are informally debating issues that concern Zionists about life, culture, and politics in Israel. Welcome this morning. We're recording on what is being marked as the 30th day since the beginning of this war. In Jewish tradition, the 30th day marks a day of mourning as the end of a period of mourning. And many schools and local municipalities today are marking the 30th day since the beginning of the war. So it's important for us to, to note that as well. We're joined this morning by Alan, who has not been in the studio with us for quite a while. So we're very excited to have Alan back. Welcome back, Alan. Thank you. I was on a Zoom a couple months that ago. That kind of counts. Okay. <laughs> and Kalev Bandor is with us as well, of course. Welcome, Hi, Kalev. Thank you. So this morning, we're going to be discussing, basically the question is, how did we get here? How did we get to a situation where Israel is currently involved in the 30th day of a war against Hamas that is taking place in Gaza? And in order to do that, we're going to have to figure out a couple of or point out a couple of historical points. Of course, Israel uh, gained control of the Gaza Strip in 1967 uh, as part of the Six-Day War. And since that period, up until 2005, there were communities of Jewish settlers living in the Gaza Strip in an area called Gush Katif. They were there. There was about nine to 10,000 Jewish settlers living amongst a Palestinian population of about 1.5 million Palestinians. In 2005, Israel removed all of its civilian and military forces from civilian population and military forces from Gush Katif and from the Gaza Strip. And since that day, Israel has not had an official presence in the Gaza Strip at all, but does maintain uh, control over the airspace and certain parts around the, the, the sea. What we're going to be discussing is how did we end up in a situation where we're currently again at war with Gaza since the disengagement of 2005. There's been several, I guess we'd call them mini wars or mini campaigns, rounds of fighting. Maybe they've never quite been called wars, but fighting rounds. And today we're in the middle of another one. The question that we're going to be asking, was this down to a a failure of intelligence? Was it down to mistakes that were made, like quite small mistakes that led to a massive outbreak of a war? Or is it something much larger than that? Are we not not seeing the bigger picture if we just focus on most recent events? So Kalev is going to introduce us first to his perspective, in which he's going to argue it's really a failure of intelligence and more a build-up of small events that led to this, and Alan will then respond. So what a lot of people have been talking about is a failure of a, a conceptia, a failure of a conception, which had been created over, over several years, which was basically that Hamas, yes, fundamentalist, potentially genocidal organization, but also pragmatic, ruling over a population of 2 million people. Governance was important to it and that it could be deterred by Israel, that every few years we would have to have, as Matthew said, a kind of a mini war or an operation. Some people called it mowing the lawn, mowing the grass. We didn't want a humanitarian crisis within Gaza, so we would allow Qatar to send money. And I think at certain stages they were sending $50 million a month in. We were allowing thousands of Palestinian laborers, daily laborers to come in and then go back home. And the the thought was the money that they would bring home would help to stabilize the economy. And that was primarily the conception that Hamas was was primarily interested. Yes, it, it was an enemy in the long term, but in the short term, it was interested in governance. It could be deterred and it was broadly pragmatic. I don't think there's any question that that conception has completely collapsed and, and been destroyed. 
by the events of October 7th, and we need to think of a new conception. But I'm not going to argue that the, the, the mistake uh, can be found in, in history, as Alan is going to. I'd, I'd like to argue something else, and that is two broad points. And I want to start with uh, a short story. I don't know how many people know this or not, people, to what extent people have been following the news, but on the very early hours of Shabbat morning of October the 7th, Shin Bet have uh, an emergency meeting, first in Tel Aviv and subsequently actually in the south. There has been movement spotted, strange movement spotted around the border between Gaza and Israel. Shin Bet is the internal domestic security services. FBI for you Americans. Okay, mm-hmm. separate to Mossad, which does foreign stuff. Shin Bet does domestic stuff, but domestic is also Palestinian stuff. They get together, something's going on. Uh, they don't know what it is, have two very, very significant meetings. They do not include the Air Force in those meetings. The head of the Shin Bet sends down uh, an elite force called Tequila to be near the border, many of many of whom end up subsequently being 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 killed in battles with Hamas. But one point that I, I, I kind of can't let go of is that, yeah, it, it was last minute, but if that intelligence would have been slightly better, or if the Air Force would have been allowed in to those calls, or if Hamas would not have succeeded with their technological cyber attack that knocked out the cameras, etc., and cut the connection between the Army and the Air Force and the people on the ground and kind of central command, granted, if, 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 okay, but if those intelligence or tactical failures would not have happened we would certainly not have had something on the scale of October 7th. There probably would have been some sort of infiltration, but there would not have been something on the scale. Maybe the, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of sad even speaking about this. Maybe the, uh, maybe the, the nature party, the rave would have been cancelled. Who knows? But certainly the scale would not have happened. As in, yeah, this was a big screw up, but it certainly could have been alleviated with better intelligence or slightly different decisions. The other argument I want to make is not of the day, but of the year before. And and blame will be apportioned out in, uh, I'm sure, a very uh, generous way after this war is over. But I genuinely believe that if another government would have been in power, as in if a government that would not have had a prime minister who was up to his neck in criminal charges, that would not have had Kahanists and uh, very radical right-wingers, trying to push a, no, I generally call it judicial reform, but we could quite easily call it a constitutional coup, uh, who were so focused on those things that when military intelligence uh, and the army said, our deterrence is being eroded and our enemies are watching, the day that the reasonableness um, legislation was passed in the Knesset, the IDF chief of staff came to the Knesset and wanted to meet both with the prime minister and with government ministers, they refused to meet with him because they were so interested in passing this legislation. And so my argument is, and I I may well agree with, with some of Alan's points about the history, but even had everything else been the same, but those two things been different, a different government focused on security rather than changing the structure of, of society and slightly better intelligence and tactical decisions on the day, I think we'd be in a completely different place. Okay. Thank you, Kalev, for uh, sharing those thoughts. 
Um, Alan, would you like to respond and zoom out a little bit and give us more of a context of why you think that so, there was a bigger play at yeah, play here? Of course, always listening to Caliph is challenging because he <laughs> always brings up, uh, you know, such a, good challenging. Yeah, good challenging, uh, challenging in sense of bringing up uh, a lot of. Uh, you know, important ideas and thoughtful. And whereas some of those also, I may agree that if those, if, 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 but you can't live in a world of ifs, I don't think. And I think it's essentially what I, what I would, what I would argue is that it's a too reductive view of, of the, of the entire, of the entire situation. And and honing down on the micro level is not really looking at the at the essential problem, because it's like it's almost if you want to say it's like seeing uh you know someone who has a, a black and blue mark on his arm and saying oh he must have just banged his banged his arm he keeps getting that black and blue mark but really there's a bigger problem in the body, right? So and so you can keep treating that black and blue mark but you're not taking care of really the entire body and in here it really goes back I think to the beginning which is we've got back to 2003 um, and Sharon's speech and when he introduced the entire idea of unilateral unilaterally leaving the Gaza Strip which we of course today he called the disengagement plan. And that's what it's been called today. And I would like to read to you from his speech a bit to see where it fits in. So this is uh, the heart of his speech in uh, 2003 at the Herzliya, fourth Herzliya conference. The purpose of the disengagement plan is to reduce terror as much as possible and grant Israel citizens the maximum level of security. I'm going to skip a little bit and to um, the process of disengagement will lead to an improvement in the quality of life and will help strengthen the Israel economy. We must not harm our strategic coordination with the United States. These steps will increase security for the residents of Israel and will relieve the pressure of the IDF and security forces in fulfilling the difficult tasks they are faced with. The disengagement plan is meant to grant maximum security and minimize friction between Israelis and Palestinians. Right? The idea was there. There were 8,000 Jews living in settlements within, you know, at that time, a million and a half or what have you, uh, Palestinians, and that would reduce friction. Um, the warnings at the time from those who were against the plan were that once you remove those settlements, you will get fired, you will get the rockets on Sterot, on the, on the envelope or the area surrounding, and all the way till Tel Aviv. And Everybody said no. I don't know. Everybody said no, but the response was no way. That's not going to happen. If that happens, we'll get rid of them. We'll wipe them out. We'll take care of Hamas or who's ever firing those rockets. And I don't think, I mean, it's pretty established fact that every couple of years <laughs> we've been going through rounds of escalating violence. It's rounds of escalating violence. Um, and each time it gets worse and each time the, the ability to to build um, more destructive um, ammunitions is, is proving itself. Um, so we could say, well, the worst round back in 2014. Um, but even today, and I don't think it's really talked about in the news, it, it really boggles my mind. But we have something I saw yesterday, I think, um, near, what's his name on uh, Channel 12, near uh, Drury, um, said we're still getting something like 100 to 150 rockets a day into Israel. 
this is 30 days in, you know, that's kind of, that's, that's crazy. And those rockets are still hitting the center of Israel country and they're hitting, right? As much as we love the Iron Dome and all that, they are hitting the, 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 the residential areas of Israel, what we call the, the Oref, which is the, the home front, the home front, thank home you. front, home front. So it, the whole point, uh, I guess the point of it is that the disengagement was supposed to bring security um, to Israel and, and prosperity. Um, we can not to get into the details of prosperity, but I certainly think people who live within that range of those rockets will would contest that idea that that's brought security and prosperity to them, and certainly the rest of Israel, what we're experiencing now. So you know it, whether it, we, I, I think we can really go back to this engagement and say that a unilateral moves w- would never work when you have a a population that um, is bent on continuing the conflict, um, which I think we, we, we do have here, that there's a, the, a sense that the conflict is continuing. Once you give up area where you are controlling um, without any kind of, any kind of means to, um, to, to either secure that area or have a partner in there that will secure that area, then it, it, it's a failure from the start. And I, I guess my, I, I'll finish with, if that was clear, I will finish with, we should have learned, we should have known that because in 2002, during the, this was all 2003, part of the history is that we were, we were in the midst of the second intifada, the most brutal conflict that we had up with the Palestinians up until that point. Um, and in 2002, in, on, on Passover at the Seder, we had the worst terrorist attack at the Park Hotel. And I don't remember the numbers killed. I, I think it's in high, either 29 or 30, something like that. But it, w- it was a great number, which then Ariel Sharon, the person who introduced this engagement last, he made a military decision that we have to go back militarily into Palestinian cities, right? And that we cannot relinquish total military control of those areas. What does it mean? It's not we're, that we're not there in there permanently, but when we see a need, we go into the areas which are controlled by the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority. It took two more years to get to a point where we could secure those areas and working in tandem with the Palestinian Authority security services. That has worked in the big picture, not that we don't have terrorist, uh, not that we don't have terrorist um, uh, attacks, but it has worked in the big picture. That's the exact opposite of what we did in Gaza. We relinquish complete control, and 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 that's eventually. If yes, if all those ifs hadn't happened that 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 Kalev had spoken about, if they didn't happen now, so they would have happened another year, another two years, another three years, because the violence has been escalating, and it has not been um, uh, and has not been pleasant. Okay, thank you, Alan. I'd like to break slightly from our regular format and ask Alan a follow-up question before I come back to Kalev, if that if that is okay. Mm, I'm, very I'm, radical. I know, you know. We're during a wartime. We can be uh, flexible, I think, at these times. Alan, it was interesting because when you when you were discussing about the unilateral nature of the disengagement and talking about how um, there was no leverage, there was no negotiations or anything. Right? It was a unilateral decision. Ariel Sharon said, we're leaving, and, and that was it. Um, one of the big differences, I guess, between that and the West Bank area, of course, though, is Israel today still has security cooperation, maybe a little less in the last year or so, but security cooperation with the Palestinian Authority. And of course, when Israel left Gaza, Hamas wasn't yet in control, at least not officially, politically in, in control yet. So to say that Israel should have um, negotiations or have somebody to work with a partner 
Who would that partner be for you? So again, so that that's the, that's the ongoing mistake of the conception that that, that, that Kalev was talking about, right? That we could contain Hamas, we could right. So that goes back to the 2006 elections. Right? It, let's be honest. Why does the Palestinian Authority still exist in the West Bank today, and why do we have security co- cooperation with them? Because Israel has 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 posted them up, right? Israel supports them. That's why they exist. So the fact that we let Hamas take over in 2006 um, in and of itself was was again part of if you may if you may the original sin right and and that has only been proven as we go along in 2008 with all that I'm not going to name all the different actions that happened but certainly 2014 with um, protective edge that we um, that when, when we didn't topple Hamas we didn't take the opportunity there that was just con- continuing this the this the, the, this idea because if we do not have boots on the ground or the ability to have boots on the ground whether with us or with a partner then we 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 are just going to continue the problem and of of um, continual conflict okay thank you escalating conflict right. really is what I mean okay thank you um Kalev, you, you mentioned um, that you feel like part of the failure here was to do with the government being distracted by judicial reform before we came on air. Um, you did also mention, I hope you don't mind me uh, pulling something off the record. I, mean, I didn't know what you're going to be mentioning. <laughs> but, exactly. Pulling off the record, now putting it back on the record, saying that you really feel that without the current government that we have, that this wouldn't have happened to that degree, right? Could you expand on that? If there was, I don't know, like a Gantz, Lapid government or some other kind of political framework ha- framework well, happening how do you the see Bennett government the Bennett Lapid government didn't right okay like how would you see that would have been different listen it, it's a great question because I think this I think this could go I think this this actually could be easily argued either way um we had a conception and that conception listen Netanyahu apart from 15 months has been in power for the last 15 years so that conception is is primarily of of his own making, and it, it reminds me because Alan spoke about two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, which was really the first. It was it was cast led. It was it was over Hanukkah. Olmert was about to lose power, and Netanyahu basically said, "You know, when I'm prime minister, I will topple Hamas." And actually, in two thousand and eight would have been a, a, a much easier opportunity than in 2014. You know, there's there's so many. So that conception of um, they can be deterred was was basically held by everyone. And and Bennett, I guess his credit claims, I mean, claims it's true that he didn't want the money to go to Qatar and that was stopped during his time. But in theory, something like October 7th could have happened when anyone was in charge, in theory. Um, So I'm not convinced necessarily that a Gans, Bennett, Lapid, etc., would have suddenly made us immune to that surprise attack. But it certainly didn't help that when the and 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 you know what, head of military intelligence and head of Shimbet and head of the IDF within a year will not be in their posts, okay? Because they, they've taken responsibility responsibility, but they were warning about it. They weren't warning specifically about on October the 7th, Hamas is going to do this. But they were saying that in general, Israel is, is considered weak. If you take that, listen, we keep on saying if, 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 
Okay, a, a, 2000, a 2016 paper written by then Defence Minister Avigdor Lieberman basically said, listen, this is what Hamas is planning. It wants to infiltrate Israel. It wants to take uh, captives. It wants to kill, um, you know, kill as many people as it can, etc. Um, we need to uh, do a surprise attack on them. We need to take out their leadership. We, we need to topple them. As in, there's many if, if, ifs. And in theory, a different government, the same thing could have happened. There's, there's, no, there's no kind of magic bullet against this. But it certainly did not help that there was a government that had, I think, unarguably taken its eye off the ball. Um, listen, if you are more right-wing, you might say, well, it was, and actually, so today, actually, in, in the newspapers, they're saying Netanyahu is looking into can the reservists' demonstrations be linked to uh, the head of Hamas's decision to, as in, you, you could take it either way. Also, the protesters were causing a distraction. Is the is the other argument I've heard. right? Listen, I I I I I gave a talk to to a community. Someone who I happen to know is extremely right wing said, you know, this is Ehud Barak's fault, and this is the reserve. This is the reservist fault, and they're going to need to pay afterwards. So, y- you you can view this through at least two lenses. But for me, the government's eye was off the ball. It was, it was focused on shtuyot. It was focused on things that are not important. It was not focused on the security aspects. And that certainly didn't. And it, it, a situation was created in it, that the image of Israel's strength was weakened. That would not have happened with a Bennett Lapid, even Mansour Abbas government. Could it still have happened? Yeah, in theory, it still could have happened because the conception was... We now know, and some people were warning at the time, that the conception was mistaken. It still could have happened, but there were there were major, major things that made it more likely to happen and succeed. The fact we have this current government in charge. Okay. So I, I guess my response to that is yes, however. I, well, my response to you is yes, however, as yeah, well. So. Exactly. What about the word if? We need the word if. <laughs> yes, however, or if. Okay. Right. If, the, if it hadn't happened on October 7th, I, 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 it would happen. There would be an escalating kind of violent, you know, would have not actually been the same way because of this conception. And I will argue that Bennett in, in Tsuka in uh, Protective Edge, he was in the government, he was a minister in the government, and he was pushing to finish Hamas, right? And then he didn't cause a lot of problems, but when he was prime minister, he didn't really put it at the top of his charts. He may be claiming now he was against the money Qatar and everything, but he played when when you came when he came into that prime ministership. You're talking, I I believe that he still and he he's himself said he's he is responsible for it. He kept that conception going along, and Avigdor Lieberman claims uh, it, it claims that he what well, was, Lieb, Lieb, Liebman did yeah when he left the government he was minister of defense in 2018, which sent us into this whole cascading uh, political. When Lieberman resigns, he he explicitly says, I'm resigning because of this. I'm saying, exactly. However, but I want to say about that, however, he joined Bennett's government, and in Bennett's government, they did not put Hamas on the radar to to end that, right? And And there was, there were rockets. There were, they had, they had an excuse. So to me, I think that that once they got into power, they were maybe a little bit more uncomfortable with this conception, but they didn't take real serious um real serious actions to to change course yeah, that's what I, th- I would argue. I think it depends how much credit or generosity we want to give 
different government. I'm not, was, so, I'm not I, feeling so generous right now. After almost 15, right, over 1,500 dead now with, right, yeah. with the war. I think you're more likely to have voted for Bennett than, than I did. But uh, Bennett, how, how long was he prime minister for? As in, it's all very well saying it wasn't put at the top. I mean, again, there's enough blame to go around. There's enough responsibility to go around. A government that was... Again, Bennett was was prime minister what for nine months? He or was so? he was so busy keeping the government I, together. I don't think we that can really say that the toppling Hamas should have been at the at the top of his priorities. Even now, by hindsight, I don't think no, he could. I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying if you if again if you say that security is the major f- issue facing Israel, the security of the South for sure. And the security of that, then it should be a major thing. If you leave the government, if you're Avigdor Lieberman, you you bring down the government over this issue. Why should that not be your major thing? If you really think, if you write in 2016, we're headed for a disaster, and nothing has been done about that, and you leave the government for that, why should it? Why shouldn't that be at the head of your, at the top of your? I keep coming back to the numbers. He didn't have the numbers to make that his priority. He just didn't. Oh, you're well, talking about, about Knesset numbers. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. I, he just didn't have the numbers. That was the priority. Put every. Five minutes, somebody else was threatening to leave the government or leave or leave the coalition. He had to keep that together. That was where all of his attention was focused. Now, whether he should have said, listen, you guys are going to walk off and, and, and mess around with me. Fine. We won't have a government anymore. But there uh, were rockets during his thing. Yeah. If you remember. That's uh, sort of pointing out. I also think something you said, and then we, we need to ramp up in a minute, but something that you said was interesting, that the development of the weaponry, right? The rockets have got more serious They've got. They've been able. The Hamas been able to develop more rockets. Rockets which are firing further. Right? If you remember, like at the beginning of the of the after the intifada, it was like Kassam rockets, right? They're like big fireworks, and now things have developed where they're a real threat to the Iron Dome and and the real threat to people and homes and property. So maybe part of that conception, the mistake was there was it gave Hamas time to build up their capabilities as well, right? Something uh, something to think if about. If I could just throw in right at the end, as we're talking about ifs, a fascinating what if is what would have happened without Iron Dome. When you were describing back, and it is important yeah. to think back to the early 2000s, I don't think anyone would have imagined that there would be rockets on Tel Aviv. And we basically more or less would have gotten used to it. People would would have thought someone was absolutely crazy. You know, the furthest, Ashkelon, I think the warnings were, in the end, it will hit Ashkelon and everyone said, no, of course it won't. But no one kind of imagined, and in some ways, what Iron Dome gave the politicians and the military space. But that space was used to just maintain and and control. And the safe rooms. Yeah. I'm sorry, you know, and the safe rooms. I guess we're, we're wrapping up, so we don't do. But this is a good another. We're wrapping up in a safe room. Yeah, we're wrapping up in a safe room. <laughs> exactly. Another, uh, I guess, maybe for another another time. But the safe rooms. But it's the same problem with the arrow and the all these other missile defense systems that we have right, against safe rooms we've had for decades you would uh, off air if we're gonna off air you were talking about the first gulf war say safe rooms we've had for a long no, we time we didn't have right? safe rooms i remember first gulf war were you here you had no you had to do we the had tape to put around plastic it. on the windows because that was really going to stop us in chemical uh, and biological right it came after that because of that um because be because you said you couldn't go down into a bomb shelter underneath the ground because it might not be enough time B because of seeping cat whatever it's all the all those things but so since then we've all had to spend 30 percent more when you build a, a place on a room because uh to build a safe room that's okay you know. um thank you alan for joining us thank you Colette for joining us i also want to point out by the way we're back at ben's studio 
Ben Wallach Studios in Jerusalem. So it's nice to be back in the studio with Ben. And he loves me hitting the microphone every three minutes. Keeps, it keeps Ben busy, gives him something to do afterwards when he's engineering through the episode. Um, but we hope that this provided an interesting uh, insight and an interesting conversation, something to think about. That's what we try to do here to provide food for thought. And the food for thought that we've discussed this morning was, to sum up Kalev's position, was it was just a, a whole series of of, uh, of mistakes and mess-ups. And uh, in Alan's case, it was a much larger issue that was at play here. So we hope that gives you food for thought, and we wish you a great day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. In everything we do, we hope to connect our fellows to Israel as home, that our Massah fellows will feel at home in Israel and understand more about Israel in all of its diversity. We connect our fellows to Jewish peoplehood, to feel an affinity for Judaism and a sense of belonging to the Jewish people. The connection is active and meaningful in their lives. And finally, personal development. And in the case of this podcast, our goal is that you'll be able to use the tools and learning for reflection and future development in conversations about Israel and Judaism. If this episode is meaningful to you, please subscribe and share with somebody that you think it will be meaningful to.